happy to see you guys. I'm going to take you through the case from start to finish. Uh, this material that you're going to be uh, seeing here is what you're going to be dealing with in your basic first year civil procedure class. The civil procedure right now probably seems like the most foreign of the topics that you're going to be covering. Uh, you're going to have contracts and criminal law towards uh, those things are more readily accessible to laypersons, uh, and those deal with more of the substantive law issues. Civil procedure is entirely about the process of litigating the dispute through primarily the federal courts is what we focus on in your basic first year course. Uh, so what you usually start with is some sort of incident. So we'll call this a car accident. That's going to trigger everything. And the question is, well, what happens next? You're going to have some people who are obviously injured by that incident or upset with what happened, and they want to take legal action. So you think of people saying, well, I want to sue. All right, well, you've got a lot of questions that you have to ask yourself. Who are you going to sue? Where are you going to do it? What are you going to sue for? How is this going to be done? These are questions that you're going to be talking about in civil procedure. The what you're going to sue for, uh, the things that you'll be talking about in your substantive law courses. So it could be a breach of contract, or it could be some sort of negligence, or a trespass, or those types of things. So the what is not the focus of civil procedure. Uh, the where is the principal thing that you're going to spend the first half of the course talking about. Where is this suit going to be brought? Whom you can sue is a big part of the topic uh, as well. And what's the process that you go through once you select your court. So you'll, you're going to typically start with someone who would be referred to as a plaintiff. Everyone has heard of these terms, plaintiffs versus defendants. So we'll keep it simple. We might have one plaintiff versus one defendant. And this person wants to sue that person. Let's call it for $100,000. All right, so the question is, where did they do this? All right, you've already had an overview of the legal system in the United States. So we have a dual system. We have a federal system and we have a state system. Every state has its own set of courts. The federal government has its system of courts throughout the country and the territories. So there's a process where the person who is initiating this lawsuit has to make a decision. Where am I going to bring this? Am I going to bring this lawsuit in federal court? Am I going to bring it in state court? That's an initial choice that has to be made. The federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. State courts of general jurisdiction. Limited jurisdiction means the federal courts can only hear the cases that Congress and the Constitution empower them to hear. So federal courts can't just hear everything. I want to make sure people over here can see it. Federal courts cannot hear all cases that are brought to them. They are limited by the US Constitution under Article 3, and then they are further limited by Congress through statute. So there are certain things that federal courts cannot hear. States, generally speaking, can hear all types of cases. Under state law, federal law, the cases that would fall within the limited jurisdiction of the federal courts there are some cases that are exclusively federal in their jurisdiction, and you don't need to concern yourself with those at a, an entry-level stage. But for the most part, the states can hear all of the cases except those that are uh, exclusive, uh, the, exclusively heard by the federal courts. So the federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. 
What this means is that you have to fit certain criteria to be able to bring the case into federal court. So one question you will be studying is, well, is this a case that can be brought in federal court? Well, it depends. There's different bases for jurisdiction in federal court. One of those bases is called diversity. Diversity jurisdiction refers to when the litigants, the plaintiff and the defendant, the adversaries here, are from two different states. All right, so we need more information here. We can put this person in Texas. This person's from New York. Now we have people from two different states. So you have citizenship is a component of a diversity jurisdiction analysis. Where are the litigants from? Another aspect of diversity jurisdiction is the amount of controversy. How much is at stake? By statute, and you're going to study these statutes in civil procedure, you can only get diversity jurisdiction if the amount of controversy exceeds $75,000. That's the current one uh, amount. So Congress has changed that amount over the years, uh, roughly to keep pace with inflation. But the amount is currently $75,000. Uh, so you see here we have $100,000 in dispute. And we have people from two different states. So that would qualify for diversity jurisdiction. This is a simple case. The things you'll get into in your civil procedure course are some of the complexities surrounding citizenship. I've told you where they are citizens of, but that's not something that you're going to be told. In the real world, you'll just have a person who happens to live somewhere. Does that make them a citizen of that state or not? There's a concept called domicile that you'll have to study and understand to figure out where a person is a citizen of. What if these aren't people, but they're entities? They're corporations or they're LLCs, they're unincorporated associations. There are different rules for how you figure out the citizenship of different kinds of entities. Corporations are citizens of where they're incorporated and where they have their headquarters. LLCs are citizens of where all their members are citizens. So it can get complicated, as you can see, very quickly. So determining citizenship is a complexity there. Amount of controversy. I told you it's $100,000. That's not something that is necessarily apparent at the outset. You might have $50,000 in property damage from the vehicle. You might have $50,000 in damages from personal injuries. Can you add those two together? That's called aggregation. The answer in this case is yes, but you can't always aggregate things. So you have to figure out uh, how to determine the amount of controversy, what counts and what doesn't count. If you're looking for some type of interest, maybe that can be included or not. What about punitive damages? Can you include that? Uh, you can, generally speaking, and state law provides for punitive damages to be available. So as you can see, there are a lot of complexities surrounding uh, diversity jurisdiction. Another potential basis for getting into federal court is called federal question jurisdiction. This is more simple uh, in that if the basis of the lawsuit is federal law, federal constitution, treaty, statute, that would be a basis for getting you into federal court regardless of what the citizenship is of the litigants. So you can have two people from Texas suing each other under federal law. That can get into federal court. Similarly, the amount of controversy is no longer relevant as of 1980. There used to be an amount of controversy requirement for federal question jurisdiction, no longer. So for any amount between litigants from any states, they can be the same states, you can get into federal court if you have a uh, dispute that is based on federal law. You'll also learn about something called supplemental jurisdiction. This is a complicated topic where you have multiple claims in the action, some of which qualify under these standards and some of which do not. So do I have to split those up? Do I have to take the ones that can qualify into federal court and the ones that can't into state court? Or can I bring them all into federal court? There are complicated rules 
that are governed by statute that tell us when we can bring them all together. That's called supplemental jurisdiction. I won't get into any of those details, but that's something that you will be studying in your civil procedure course. And um, then there's something called removal jurisdiction. So you might have something that begins in state court and the person against whom the case is brought in state court decides, I don't want to be in state court. I want to be in federal court. Well, Congress has given them an option to remove the case into federal court under certain circumstances. There are a lot of complicated rules surrounding when you can do that. One of those rules is that it has to qualify for federal jurisdiction under one of these bases. But there are additional complications as well, such as time frame, who can do this, how many people have to agree to that, etc. So this is uh, something that you'll be talking about uh, as well. All of these topics fit under the umbrella of subject matter jurisdiction, which is one of the principal units in, per in uh, civil procedure. Uh, I cover subject matter jurisdiction second after the next topic that I'm going to get to. Uh, other professors may cover it first. They may cover it in the middle of the semester. Different professors approach civil procedure different ways, and the sequencing for what topics you're going to cover can vary, so you shouldn't be surprised uh, by that. So that's subject matter jurisdiction in a nutshell. The next issue that you have to concern yourself with when it comes to where, we're still talking about where this can be brought, is personal jurisdiction. Personal jurisdiction, that's a PJ that I've written for people who might not be able to see the board too well. And what that means is, we've talked about federal versus state, but now we have to figure out, well, where within the United States geographically can this be brought? Which state are we talking about? And that applies to federal or state court. Federal courts, by rule, you'll study the rules of civil procedure, have limited the reach of their courts geographically to the same extent as the states where those federal courts are located. So both federal and state courts are limited by the due process clause of the Constitution to the extent to which they can exercise judicial authority. What that means is if we have a dispute between someone from Texas and New York, the question is, for example, can a court in Wyoming, federal or state, hear this dispute? Can a court in Virginia hear this dispute? The answer is, as you'll figure out in a lot of situations, is it depends. All right, so <laughs> and you probably, did you hear that in the earlier section? Maybe? Well, you're going to hear that constantly here, that the answer, the very good uh, lawyer answer is, it depends. So you might initially say, well, of course not. Why would Wyoming be able to hear this? Why would Virginia be able to hear this? Well, there's information that you don't have. The key information that you don't have is where did this accident occur? If the accident occurred in Wyoming, then Wyoming courts can hear the case. Or the case, or the accident occurred in Virginia, they can hear the case. Uh, so there has to be a connection between the dispute and the state, or a connection between the defendant uh, and the state. So personal jurisdiction, without getting into all the details, is the study of under what circumstances can states exercise authority over a case. And it principally can be done when the defendant is from that state, or if there is a connection between the dispute and that state. That would allow that court to exercise what we call personal jurisdiction. A related topic that we'll talk about in civil procedure is called venue. Venue is similar, uh, although it's a federal concern uh, where we're trying to figure out which among the different 94 or so federal districts this case can be heard. So we might have determined that this case could be heard in maybe Virginia because the, case, the accident happened there. Maybe it can also be heard in New York 
because the defendant is from there. Well, in the federal system, there are four different federal districts in New York. The Southern District, Eastern, Northern District. You have these different districts in New York. Well, which one are we talking about? All right, so personal jurisdiction is a statewide concept. Venue is a district-level concept. So we've said New York works in the personal jurisdiction, but now we've subdivided it into four districts. Which district within that state can we bring this case? Well, that's going to depend, depend on where does this person live, where is this person domiciled. Or if we're talking about Virginia, the accident happened in Virginia. Well, Virginia has two federal districts, the eastern and the western. We are currently in the western district of Virginia. If the accident happened in Richmond, Richmond is in the eastern district of Virginia. So if someone brings the lawsuit in the western district of Virginia, that's not appropriate. And while I'm on that, you might start to think, this is a whole bunch of technicalities. And you're right, but it's important to understand as a lawyer, when you're representing somebody who is being sued, you need to be able to know they have sued my client in the western district of Virginia. One of the things you're going to do as, as a lawyer for that person in response is going to be to raise these procedural challenges. A lot of times you think about in litigation, they are being sued for having caused this accident. Your thought as a layperson is, well, we're going to respond with our defense. It wasn't our fault. We didn't do it. I wasn't there. Those are things that relate to the substance of the dispute. Civil procedure is not concerned with that. And you don't get to the substance of the dispute until you get deep into this process. At the outset, you have a lot of procedural hurdles that the plaintiff has to overcome. And your job as a lawyer for the defense is to recognize if the plaintiff has slipped up and filed the case in the wrong place. If they filed in the Western District of Virginia and that's not where the accident happened or the person's not from, then you're going to move to dismiss that case. You can get rid of the case on procedural grounds, uh, and that's the most frequent way that cases are actually disposed of. Less than 2% of the cases are resolved by trials in the federal system. All right, so most cases are resolved on these technicalities. All right, so they're very important for you to master as attorneys. Obviously, if you're an attorney for the plaintiff, it's something you're going to have to be a master of as well, such as you don't slip up and file the case in the wrong place and render your client vulnerable to a dismissal. So venue is another important layer of where this can be brought. Typically around this time in the course, we also look at choice of law, and different professors may spend some or no time on this topic. This is something called the Erie Doctrine. I'm not going to get into it, but the basic question is, and this relates to things that you talked about in the previous session, uh, is whether federal or state law is going to apply. And that can be complicated. The general rule of thumb is that state substantive law is going to apply if we're talking about diversity uh, cases, but federal procedural law will apply. It gets more complicated than that because what's procedural law, what's substantive law? The line between that is not that clear in all cases. Uh, so that is a uh, topic that will have to be resolved or uh, covered in your civil procedure course as well. So once we have gone through all these hurdles, we figured out, well, we're going to be in state and federal court, and we've picked a state that has jurisdiction. We've gotten into the right venue. Now we can talk about actually initiating the action. And one of those first steps is going to be service of process.
And service of process is the way that you notify the defendant that you are suing them and the location of that suit. There are a lot of rules that govern that uh, within Rule 4 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. You may or may not cover service of process in your basic first year course. In my first year course, we do not cover service of process. I cover it in advanced civil procedure. Other professors may cover this in the basic course. Uh, but this is the, uh, an important step. If this is not handled properly, again, then the case is subject to dismissal by or challenge by the defendant. So you have to jump through those uh, hoops. For example, you, know, you may think that, well, I'll just send this to them in the mail. Well, you can't necessarily do that unless the rules uh, allow that and under certain circumstances, they do. Uh, can you serve it by FedEx? Can you give it to them personally? Can you give it to their daughter who's at their house at home? Maybe. It depends on the age of the daughter and if that person lives there. So there's a lot of rules surrounding service or process. Again, I don't get into those in the first year course. Some of your professors may. What is it that we're serving? Okay, we're serving something called the complaint. And the complaint is part of the pleading process. So now we're getting into actually litigating the case. The complaint is the document that you put together that says, this court has jurisdiction, here are all of my claims, and here's the relief that I'm seeking. And in your classes, you should look at uh, actual complaints. In some of your civil procedure classes, you may look at that. Uh, but you'll need to understand the different components of what a complaint entails. There are rules for how you have to state your claim and how specifically you have to articulate it, how many facts, if any, that you have to include. That's an area that's in, in some flux. Not getting into those details now, but in your courses, when you get to the pleading material, uh, you'll be looking at, well, what exactly do I have to say in the complaint? How much detail do I ha have to have? Sometimes, as you'll see, it may be difficult to have some detail at the outset. You may not clearly know the identity of the person, or you may not have all of the facts surrounding what happened. Uh, so it's very difficult at that stage to include that information in your complaint. But the rules are increasingly requiring people to have more detail in the complaints. So that's a, an issue uh, that comes up at the pleading stage. So what happens here is you have a complaint that is served, and then the defendant has to respond. The pleading response to a complaint is called an answer. And an answer is a response that either admits or denies what's uh, contained in the complaint. If the answer is something that the defendant wants, does not want to do, an alternative is to file pre-answer motions. These motions would be raising these types of defenses or other types of defenses that you'll learn about in civil procedure. So if you get a complaint served on your client, if you think that there is a jurisdictional defect, you do not have to file an answer saying, well, we deny this. You don't have to address the substance. You can file a motion to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. Or you can file a motion to dismiss for improper subject matter jurisdiction. A motion to dismiss for improper venue. There's also a motion that can challenge the sufficiency of the pleading. So there's a rule that governs the content of complaints. If you think that the person has violated that rule and they have not given enough detail or information, you can file a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim. Another thing you can do is if the person has set forth in their complaint all of these facts, but those facts don't add up to liability, and your basic response is, so what? Everything you say, let's assume that is true. I did A, I did B, I did C. Under the law, doing A, B, and C is not unlawful. Therefore, you have failed to state a claim. I don't have to respond on the substance and say, I didn't do that. 
We can just say for the sake of argument, let's assume I did. The law doesn't care. You do not have a case. Motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim. So these are various pre-answer motions that you can file. Once those are resolved, you either prevail on those and the case is over, or if you don't prevail on those, then the defendant has to answer. There can be a chance for the defendant to say in this situation, well, wait a minute. I was in this accident. I was injured. It was your fault. All right? So that's not just a defense. That's a claim that the defendant has against the plaintiff. Is the defendant supposed to go into court and initiate a separate lawsuit? Or can the defendant assert that claim in this case? Doing so in this case is called a counterclaim. So the defendant can do that. Let's say it's for $50,000. Fewer injuries, less valuable car, it adds up to $50,000. Can the defendant do that? Well, there's two issues there. Am I allowed to assert that as a matter of claim joinder? And that's an issue that we'll be talking about next. Do the rules allow me to assert a claim of this kind in this action, or do I have to go separately? And then don't forget jurisdiction. Federal courts, of course, is limited jurisdiction. You can't just assert a claim in federal court because you want to. It has to fit within the statutory and constitutional scope of jurisdiction of the federal courts. This is a $50,000 claim between people from two different states. Does that mean the amount of controversy? No. Does that mean we can't do it? Not necessarily. This is where supplemental jurisdiction comes in. Supplemental jurisdiction is a set of rules that permit claims that do not qualify under an independent basis for its subject matter jurisdiction to nevertheless get into federal court because of their relationship with claims that do qualify. So if this claim arises out of this car accident as the basis for this initial claim, you're good to go. If this claim has nothing to do with this, oh, you're suing me for this? Well, what about the time that you, in this other incident, a year ago caused a different accident with me? Since we're all here, why don't I sue you for that now? <laughs> That's not going to fly in federal court because there's no relationship between these two. This is not related to that one. It doesn't meet the amount of controversy requirement. Well, then you might ask yourself, well, can I add these two together? I talked about ag aggregation earlier, 100 plus 50 is 150. That's greater than 75. Can we do that? No. You'll learn about aggregation when you get into the details of the amount of controversy requirement. This plaintiff can add their claims to each other. So if I got a 50, a 20, and a 20, he can add them. But different parties can't add their claims to each other. All right, so again, there's complexity there that you're going to be getting into uh, when you look at the amount of controversy requirement. So in the answer, the defendant is able to respond by saying, I deny these things, and I also want to assert a claim against you. That would be a counterclaim. If the defendant asserts a counterclaim, the plaintiff is under the obligation to file an answer to that. So the complaint is followed by an answer with a counterclaim, if there is a counterclaim. Then the plaintiff has to respond with an answer to the counterclaim, to deny or admit those things. Also within the pleading material, you'll talk about amendments. Under what circumstances can I change what I have done or what I have said in the pleadings? There are some technical rules associated with that. Different professors that you have may cover amendments to different degrees. Uh, so I cover it 
uh, a fair amount, but uh, others may cover it only in passing or not at all. But amendment is another component of this. There's also a piece here that deals with truth in pleading. Uh, and so to what extent are there repercussions for misrepresenting the facts in your pleadings or for saying things that are unsupported by the facts or by the law? If that happens, the other side can call you out on it and the court can uh, potentially impose sanctions or a penalty or a fine. So that's covered by Rule 11. Joiner is getting into the who. We talked about the where. Well, we're really talking about now the how and the who here when it comes to joiner. I've already mentioned an issue surrounding claim joiner. Can I bring this counterclaim here? What if this plaintiff wants to sue this defendant for $100,000 for this accident, and they also want to sue, let's say, $20,000 for another incident that has nothing to do with this accident, no relationship whatsoever? Well, there's two issues again. There's the joinder issue. Do the rules allow me to bring two unrelated claims uh, together in the same uh, action? As you'll learn, yes, they do. Rule 18 allows you to join any claims without regard to whether they're related to one another. What about jurisdiction? Well, I told you that you can add these two together if you're a single plaintiff doing it against this person. They add up to more than $175,000 and they're from two different states. So the answer is, which may be surprising, Yes, the plaintiff can do this. The plaintiff can bring a completely unrelated $20,000 claim. And that's not even using supplemental jurisdiction. That's adding those two claims uh, together to get the amount. So can we join those claims together? Yes, counterclaims. There's another situation here. We start, and, and I go through my semester, most of the first half we're looking at one defendant versus another defendant. But then once we hit the joiner topic, that's when things really start to get complicated because these are not the way that things happen in the real world. What if there is another plaintiff? Why would there be another plaintiff? This is the driver. This is their passenger. They were in a car accident with this defendant. Both of them want to sue this person together. Can they do that, or do they have to do this separately? The rules allow them to do this. It's Rule 20. We'll study that in your civil procedure class. So that's a topic under claim joiner. What if this person wants to sue the co-plaintiff? Can they do that? Yes, they can. That's rule 13G. You're going to learn all of these rules. You're going to learn all of these rules when you get into civil procedure. All right? So they can do that under certain circumstances. There's certain hoops they have to uh, jump through. But look at this. We've got $50,000. They're both from Texas. That should now start to raise some alarms. From the same state, the amount is not enough. I can't add this to that. Is that going to work? Is it not going to work? Maybe. Stay tuned for your joiner topic. All right? I'm not going to tell you, so you'll have to figure that out. All right? So that's called a cross claim. This defendant, uh oh, we got somebody else. This is a non party. They weren't even in this. The defendant said, You're suing me. No, it's this other person. We need to bring them into the action. And I have a claim against them. If I owe you this money, then they owe me this money. Maybe this is my insurance company. All right? Or maybe I'm a driver for UPS. UPS is the one that should be paying for this, not me. I need to bring them into this action. All right? And while we're at it, UPS, I'm suing you for back pay, for something else. <laughs> Can I do that? All right? So rule 14, as you'll learn, covers this. Rule 18 allows you to join these two things together. 
So it gets very complicated, as you can see, as to whether you can join different people into this action. You've got non-partners who may want to come in. That's called intervention under Rule 24. So joinder can get very complicated, uh, and that's something that you uh, may cover different times on the semester. I do in the second half uh, of the semester. So once we've got this case shaped up in terms of party joinder, we get into discovery. I think people are generally familiar with discovery, which is where you have uh, the uh, parties are seeking information from each other, depositions, uh, those types of things uh, are happening. Uh, you're getting the information that you need to build your case. That all leads to something called summary judgment, where a person usually makes a motion to try to get rid of the case, saying that, well, we've had discovery, you don't have enough evidence to prove your claims, uh, and therefore, this case doesn't deserve to go to a jury. Because juries are only required to resolve factual disputes. At this stage, you might say, well, there really is no factual dispute. Uh, no point for a jury. Judge, you can resolve this before the jury gets the case. If summary judgment is denied, there's an actual trial. Civil procedure doesn't focus on trials. Uh, for the most part, although some of your professors may focus on the jury right uh, and issues surrounding a jury trial. After the trial, there's post-trial motions. And these post-trial motions, to varying degrees, may or may not be covered in your basic course. I don't cover post-trial motions in my civil procedure course. Other professors may. Uh, but these are ways where you can say, well, the jury reached this result, but that's inconsistent with the evidence presented at trial, or there were uh, pieces of evidence that you admitted, judge, that you shouldn't have admitted, that was a mistake, therefore we need a new trial. All right, so you can have a new trial, you can have judgment, uh, notwithstanding the verdict, uh, you can have relief from judgment, all types of post-trial motions. Then that is followed by your appeal. I don't focus on appeals in my course, other professors may. Again, you're going to have variation within your civil procedure courses. You see there's a lot of topics to cover, and one semester is not enough time to cover everything. So different professors make different choices about which pieces of this puzzle they want to focus on. So some of you will talk about the appellate process. The last thing, and then I'm done, is something called preclusion. There's actually one thing after that, which is called execution of judgments. But preclusion is something where you say, well, we've already resolved this case. Now someone wants to bring another case. Uh, are they barred from doing that because they should have brought it up here? But now they're trying to bring it up later. Right? So that's something that most professors will cover at the end of their semester. So that's a very quick whirlwind overview <laughs> of civil procedure. None of that needs to sink in. Civil procedure is going to cover this. This is just an illustration of what civil procedure is. So you don't walk in there blind and say, well, what are we talking about? This is what you're going to be talking about in this semester in civil procedure. So have a great semester. Thank you.